Your digital library experience. Podcasts from algoafm.co.za. Right, so Dr. Ranel Gower, welcome. Thank you. The reason I'm talking to Dr. Gower is uh, we are headed for the Algoa FM 25th Big Walk for Cancer with our various partners. And the lady sitting opposite me, I think, holds a special place in the heart of many, many, many people who have have reason to be very grateful for not only the, the skill that you possess, but I think also from what has been abundantly obvious is from... Uh, your bedside manner is is atypical. Um, so some context is you are a plastic surgeon. Yes, I am. Okay. And that wasn't your first choice, as I understand. Well, um, when I was a student, I wanted to be a gynae. Okay. I thought delivering babies was the only job in the world. And I still think it's a marvelous job, except I want to sleep at night now. So, and not be woken and go, no. this one now. No, no, no. So... I had an interest in breast cancer and cancer-related stuff along with anything gynecological and obstetric while I was an undergrad student. But I was also one of those people that wanted to be a doctor from when I was really little. So every part of medicine always excited me. And I think it's it's just by a stroke of luck that I didn't actually take the gynae pathway to specialize because that resulted that I went to work in a trauma unit and I locumed as a GP. And I got a lot of experience across a whole host of of disciplines. And then in 2007, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I think that that was probably the pivotal moment career-wise for me because… So we're talking 16 years ago. But to give me some context, where in your medical career were you in 07? So in 07, I was was in my second year after finishing my… community service. So I had finished ComServe in 2005. And my mom initially in 2006 um, was referred to a surgeon for an abnormal mammogram. And um, I'd had this interest in, in breast cancer and obviously have an interest in my mother. So it always concerned me why the report was coming every year saying there's something on your mammogram and nobody was referring to her to anyone. And then she went to see the surgeon and the surgeon's response was, well, you know, it doesn't feel like cancer. So, you know, if you're the hysterical type, we can cut it out. And I'm not sure I would, I'd I'd be comforted even vaguely by that approach. And I'm not being critical, but come on. Unfortunately, that was the way things were done years ago. No, come on. You're saying years ago, like we're talking 1973 here. We're talking 16 years it well, can't we can probably have take been it back to five years ago. You know, it's, it wow. happens, unfortunately. Okay. Which has been also part of my, um, you know, as a side note, my interests in, in sort of in, in, in oncoplastics and, and oncological surgery is to, to, to kind of enforce what's international standards. So it's, that's why I'm saying, you know, it's as recent as probably five years ago you would have had surgeons saying, well, it doesn't feel like cancer or will, you know, you're the hysterical type. Anyway, and my mom is... I'm still a little gobsmacked, <laughs> I won't lie. Well, my mother is, is, is the exact opposite of a hysterical type. Yeah. So she was only too happy to accept the surgeon's opinion and, and that was it. And I was just her hysterical daughter. <laughs> 
And um, the following year, she again went for a mammogram. And on this mammogram, there was that abnormality had changed slightly. And so I begged my mom to see a different surgeon. And this particular guy actually said to my mom, look, I know Renelle. She's going to nag me if we don't biopsy <laughs> this. So I'm just going to go and biopsy this. Okay. And the day before her follow-up appointment, he phoned me. And he said, well, um, got your mom's results back. And it's confirmed cancer. She needs a mastectomy. And we waited how long? Well, this was the week. Well, this was five days, six days after her biopsy. But for years and years of me going, but why is nobody sending her? But what struck me on that day was the way he just phoned me and said, so your mom's got cancer. She needs a mastectomy. Do you want to tell her or shall I? And, and I thought, well, God, if this is how you tell people they've got cancer, then maybe I must do it myself. And at that point, I mean, I was three, four years into my medical career. I'd, I'd have given people bad news. I'd have told patient families bad things. But it was the first time that I personally felt what bad news felt like. And I remember thinking, well, if this is how you tell people they've got cancer, I'll tell my mom myself. And that night I, I worked in a trauma unit and I worked my shift and unfortunately, it was the quietest trauma shift in the history of mankind. Your mind must have driven so you insane. So I had nothing to do virtually the whole night. And I walked around the trauma unit wondering, how do you tell your mom that she's got cancer? How do you tell your mom she's got breast cancer? And how do you explain it to somebody who knows nothing about medicine? And in retrospect, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me because sure. it's forced me to constantly ask myself, how would I want to hear something? And how would I want the person who's telling me something bad to do it? Now, obviously, people differ. I mean, some people want cold, hard facts. But most people just, they want somebody to know that, they, that they're going to be looked after. Surely. So, well, you do have people who just want cold, hard facts. So, it, and I respect that. Anyway, so I sat down with my mom a few hours before her appointment and I told her, and we got to the follow-up appointment. The surgeon checked her incisions and was quite happy. And then, you know, very true-to-form surgical manner said, right, you need to see an oncologist. You need a mastectomy. It's cancer. Da -da -da. Off you go. So a typical short little follow-up visit. And um, it wasn't unusual because that's what I expected. That's that's was medical culture. So we… Why? Oh, I don't know. I, th it, it, I think we're not taught. I think we're not taught to feel. We're not. Is it a survival skill? Oh, absolutely. I don't know what medical training is like now, but it was very much frowned upon to to be emotionally involved. And one of my other sort of pivotal experiences was when I was an intern and I, and I was working at provincial hospital here in PE, and a patient with cancer had passed away. And she'd been in our ward for, for weeks. And as, we as I signed the form, I, I realized I was going to start crying. Mm. And so I quickly ran off and um, went to go hide on a, in a staircase between two floors. Yeah. And we had a, a nursing sister, Sister Putty. And um, she, I heard her little footsteps because she, you know, she was proper old school nurse, you know, had fierce steps. And I heard her following me. And she, she walked up to me with her little finger wagging. And I thought, oh, no, she's going to give it to me for being unprofessional. And she said, don't ever stop this. Oh. And I looked at her and she said, 
Don't ever stop feeling sad when something bad happens. Because you guys are all nice when you start and something changes. So that happened to me in 2004. And I'm so grateful for Sister Putty because I have no qualms Mm. about shedding a tear when it's required. Mm. I don't, I'm not inappropriate about it. I do go home and live a life and I don't lie awake at night and wonder what my patients are up to. Um, So it's not an unbalanced reaction. It's just a human reaction. There is still an enrolling and derolling each day. Yes. Um, But for the period that you are enrolled, you are very present, it seems like. Yeah. And very empathetic. Yes, yes. Um, And, yeah, empathetic because, well, (laughs) how did your journey start? Yes. And so when we saw the oncologist, you know, I went with my mom. And and my mom, you know, she's from an older generation where people just accept whatever the doctor says. Tough it out Never questions anything. It just goes, yes, doctor, no, doctor. And so I went with her. And... We, we saw the oncologist, and I, I knew this oncologist from my, my days in, in trauma, and I was quite scared of him. I mean, we had only the utmost respect for this man. He was very strict with us, um, you know, as, as doctors who often had to look after his patients. I'm working and through the ones I know and I'm trying to think of again. No, I will quite happily say it was Keith Mart. Okay. <laughs> so, um, no, I have only the utmost respect. And, and we had this appointment with Keith Mart, and he knew me, and I obviously knew him, and I kept asking stupid questions. I kept asking the same question over and over and over. Like what? No, just, is my mom going to die? Um, does she need chemo? Why, why not chemo? Okay, and what if we do the radiation but we don't do this? And I kept asking the same thing. And he kept explaining. And he stayed patient. And he stayed compassionate. And the, at that time, the oncologists were based at St. George's Hospital. And I will never forget, we walked out of his office, walked out of the oncology practice and as we left the hospital exit i stopped dead in my tracks and i said mom i want to be keith mart when i grow up (laughs) when i grow up (laughs) so that to me was i want to be the surgeon because i like surgery and but i want the bedside manner and the patient interaction that we got that day right and that started the journey that was 2007 okay so in South Africa, you can't train formally as a breast surgeon or as an oncological surgeon. So elsewhere in the world, one could do a combined training course where you do elements of general surgery and elements of plastic surgery. But in 2007, 2008, 2009, your options were you specialized as a general surgeon. And if you were very, very lucky, you got a post, a training post in plastic surgery it's a tough specialty to get um, into because they're very limited training posts across the country. Alternatively, once you qualified, you could go overseas and, and do a, a specific training course. So, I mean, f- 15 years later, there, there are better options and better alternatives, but that was the path. Sure. And um, being the nerd that I was, I was so keen to do this that I used to study for the exams way before I even had a post to specialize. So when you specialize in something surgical, you you generally do three sets of exams across a five-year period. So I actually wrote my primary exams um, while working at at Trauma um, without a registrar post in sight, and I just did the exams. So 
which was quite lucky because that's how I got my post in general surgery. And so I started my training as a specialist um, at Bloemfontein in general surgery. Um, the head of department at the time was a, a, quite an avid breast cancer surgeon. So he was quite excited to have a, well, a female in his department. I was the only one at some stage. Okay. Um, and, and a protege of sorts, well, maybe. From his side, yes. From my colleagues, not so much. It was very much a, a man's world 15 years ago. You, I, again, you are messing with me by saying things like that. We're talking post-2000 here. It, you're, you're, you're borderline upsetting me with some <laughs> of the things that you're saying because it doesn't make sense. Well, and I, I know that I, 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 I can, I'll save my outrage for another time. I'm just surprised because, uh, yeah, my greatest interaction with cancer started late 2009. Mm-hmm. As a result of my dad, and I don't know if we just got spectacularly lucky, um, or, or what the deal is. But a lot of the things you're telling me, um, I haven't experienced, and I'm now horrified to think that other people have. Look, because I don't regard it as good enough. Well, luckily it's changed. Yeah. I mean, if I think back to when I was an undergrad student, and we actually had our 20-year class reunion last week. So um, it's not that, yes, 44 (laughs) for anyone. (laughs) Um, I just thought I didn't ask. No, no, I'm I'm not shy. I mean, look at all my gray hair. I'm I'm not not playing that game. (laughs) (laughs) No, so when I was an undergrad student 20 years ago, we didn't have a single female orthopedic surgeon at Tigerberg. Mm. No, women didn't do orthopedics. There was... One lady working in urology, and we all thought it so strange. Now, this is a big training hospital in the Western Cape. And 20 years ago, there was one female urology doctor. But it's changed. Uh, I would imagine that (laughs) us girls are taking over. (laughs) The boys are in trouble. I see your glass ceiling and I've got news for you. <laughs> yeah. So, no, thing, things are much better now. It's, it's, there's way more equality um, in all aspects. Hmm. So, yeah. yeah. But now, more about you. What happened with mom? Well, mom was typical mom. <coughs> she decided that she didn't want she, – so she, she was fortunate. It was early breast cancer. She could have a mastectomy or alternatively – have the tumor excised with radiation. To her, the radiation sounded like a lot of work, whereas surgery sounded really quick. And so she okay. chose that option. And So it, single or double? It, she just did the one side. Okay. No, relevant because uh, opinion varies on, on, on what to do. Well, the, yeah. In terms of what's right, from a from an oncological perspective and from a it surgical be, it perspective. It should almost always be double. No, not necessarily. Oh. You know, um, unfortunately, when Angelina Jolie, you know, made it very public about her BRCA status, um, I think she For popul- people who don't know the term? BRCA, oh my golly, you're catching me out. BRCA, it's yes. a genetic mutation yes. that predicts your risk for breast cancer. There's two types, BRCA1 yeah. and 2. Um, with BRCA1, you've got a approximately 90% chance of getting breast cancer in your lifetime. BRCA2 is a slightly lower breast cancer risk, but it also has a high risk of ovarian cancer. Right. So years ago, probably when Angelina Jolie was was sort of making news for her, her mastectomies, BRCA was the 
the go-to test. Luckily, we've got way more access to way more genetic tests, so we can look for more things. So from for doing so when so when Angelina had her her mastectomy, she publicised and, and spoke a lot about her prophylactic mastectomies, and and I think that's done a lot of damage for breast cancer related surgery, because prophylactic implies that it prevents. And it, it, might not. it doesn't prevent. It merely reduces your risk. By removing most of the tissue yes, that is susceptible. Exactly. So we, we call it risk-reducing surgery. And it's significantly risk-reducing. So that's why doing both depends on what your individual risk is. So you get subtypes of breast cancer, and some of them are far less likely to recur, and they're far less likely to recur, um, you know, so let's say you, you don't have a mastectomy, you have a lumpectomy, which is when we we just remove the tumor. So in specific types of breast cancer, your chance of it actually coming back in the same breast or coming back in the other breast is very low. And with appropriate systemic treatment in the form of tablets or chemotherapy, your risk is even lowered. So then you have to look at the surgical risks of doing bilateral mastectomies with or without reconstructions. So so it's absolutely, it should be an individualized decision based on a person's preferences. For some women, it's really important to go in for theater with, with a breast and to wake up with a breast. Right. Sometimes we don't want to even take a chance of any anything delaying further treatment. So, you know, we may advise to, to rather delay the reconstruction. And Sorry, is, is this one of those these situations where, sadly, advice creates liability, but information is power? Yes, information is power, but too much information is also a liability. It's paralyzing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, so there's various options, and specifically for my mom, um, I think, her, you, know, uh, you know, applying Dr. Goggles, she probably wasn't the best um, – an aesthetic and, and surgical candidate to even think about reconstruction or bilateral mastectomies. Um, so with her, she just had the one side. Um, and, you know, 15, 16 years ago, plastic surgeons, oncoplastic surgeons, um, reconstructive techniques weren't necessarily so freely available that it could be offered standard. So it simply wasn't discussed with her at the time. Um but she, you know, the day after her surgery, her surgeon came to see her in the ward and she said, so, doctor, can I go home? And he was like, no, no, you've just had a mastectomy. And the next day, he, she, he came in and she said, so, can I go home today? And he said, no, you've just had big surgery. And then on the third day, he walked in and she said, doctor, I'm going home today. Okay. So, yeah. And then she got home. I was living with her and my brother. Um we got a stern talking to you about having not done the washing for the three days that she was in hospital. And before I knew I it, my mom was... I think your mother knows my mother. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, a few months after that, I, I wanted headache pills. Um, and my mom produced this box of stock standard, you know, anti-inflammatory post-operative general headache pills. And there were two missing from the box. And I, you know, asked her where she got these pills because, you know, she's... She doesn't go to a pharmacy much or whatever. And she said, no, that's from my mastectomy. And I'm like, Mom, what do you mean? Pulls. You only took two pulls. And she said, she looked at me quite surprised and she said, nobody told me it's supposed to be painful. You know, when a person gets diagnosed with cancer, when, when she was diagnosed, somebody, a family member said to her, when you've had a cancer diagnosis, a headache is never just a headache again. 
There's always a niggle. You always wonder. You always worry. Same's true for a heart attack, for oh, instance. Absolutely. It's it's. I th- I think, and I think it's a good thing. I think it's good that we learn from our experiences and that we we create vigilance for ourselves. Maybe it's an impetus to to have a few lifestyle changes. Who knows? Yeah, you see, the thing sooner. is, it wasn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I I um, I was a patient myself five years ago, and. I, I remember telling my surgeon when I was eventually discharged from hospital um, because, I mean, I, nobody really thought I was going to survive it. Yeah. And when he eventually discharged me, I said, oh, you know what? This has changed my life. I'm going to be a whole new person. And he still said to me, no, you're not. you forget very quickly. <laughs> and I thought, I can't believe this man thinks I'm going to forget this life-changing experience. Well, five years later, and I'm still as unhealthy as ever. <laughs> so he, he was indeed right. But, yeah, so with my mom, she... You know, we, we thought when the 10-year mark came that she's dodged a bullet. And um, in 2018, she had uterine bleeding, a vaginal bleeding. Thankfully, this time around, she didn't wait. And oh, within a matter of a week, I think, she was diagnosed with uh, what was thought at the time to be a very aggressive uterine cancer. And about eight, nine days later, she was operated on. And um, she, she, she's gone back to her oncologist. And um, at the time, she didn't need to have chemo. The surgery had gone really well. And, um, you know, we were told that it can possibly recur within the next sort of two, three years. And so we'll save the, the chemo for then. Well, it was a uterine cancer. Um, it just thankfully wasn't quite the aggressive variant that the initial biopsy showed. But um, And somehow she'd got it, you know, she'd, she'd had it checked out early enough that with the appropriate surgery, it hadn't spread anywhere. So anyway, so that was 2018, and five years later, and there's still no sign of cancer anywhere. So we've been quite fortunate. I mean, I pretty much get a peptic ulcer every time she needs her (laughs) her follow-up staging exams. I start planning her funeral every time she's booked for a doctor's appointment. You have to find a doctor's friend who can script stuff for you because you can't write your own. (laughs) Yeah, well, look, even if they could, nothing will stop the worry I have the day before her check and um, all of our checks, really. I mean, we all... It it sounds, though, like to to a great deal this, this has shaped... Your approach and your final, well, it, it was, it did concrete or cement, rather, your decision to take the direction you have. Um, but her journey seems to have only respectfully assisted in, in you getting to where you are now. And, and in case you're not prepared to say it, I will. Um, you are a highly regarded, well-respected, and much loved by your many, many, many grateful patients, Dr. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That that really that uh, um, I know. <laughs> yeah, you ne- me up because you, you're, you're never going to say it yourself in the same way that I'm not going to say it about my, myself. Yeah. But it it is a fact. I regard you as unusually special um, in in the very few interactions that I've had with you. You you seem to have a, a level of of dedication um, that goes beyond your digital library experience. Podcasts from algoafm.co.za.